HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of the latest episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. We're counting down the days to the 4th of July, so this week's theme is independence. After all, we're an independent food radio station. HRN is a labor of love. Staff, hosts, and listeners all share the belief that storytelling can change the world, one bite or sound bite at a time. We take a moment to ponder our founding mothers and fathers, specifically what they were drinking during the Revolutionary War. Rum in various combinations with beer and cider would be the order of the day. We highlight a story of self-sufficiency on the island of Vieques, Puerto Rico. The biggest thing we did was to start a lot of fermented vegetables because we knew the first thing to go would be refrigerator trucks coming to the island. And we examine the challenges facing independent grocery stores across the U.S. The struggle is real, but the future looks bright. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat in 3, available at heritageradionetwork.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, and my guest today is Ariel Fox. She is the concept executive chef of Dos Caminos with five locations around New York City. She became the chef at Dos Caminos in October 2017 and oversees culinary operations at all of the locations. She's born in Northern California, and she's a graduate of the California School of Culinary Arts, Le Cordon Bleu. She has extensive cooking experience, ranging from catering to standalone restaurants like Acme here in the city. She's uh, run mini chains like STK, and she's also been in charge of culinary operations for large hospitality companies like The One Group, where she launched multiple restaurants for them in Vegas, Miami, and Manhattan. Chef, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to start at the way beginning, as I often do on the line, uh, at your childhood. So... uh, where did you grow up in Northern California? And when you were a kid, what did you think you wanted to be? Well, I grew up in Santa Cruz, California, a little beach town in Northern California in the Monterey Bay. Um, very unique place to grow up. Very eclectic mix of all sorts of people, cultures, backgrounds. Um, very influential for me as a child to have so many different influences in my life. When I was a kid, I can honestly tell you... I don't know what I wanted to be at the time, but I think things were slowly shaping to take me where I am today. I just didn't know it at the time. And so when you say that, that they were shaping you, what exactly were those factors that that contributed? Uh, Were you immersed in farm culture? Like, did your family go to markets? Um, Did you ever have a restaurant job when you were a teenager? Like, what are those factors that you think kind of pushed you to a full-on career in food for many, many years now? Well, growing up in Northern California, everyone knows that that part of the world kind of shaped the organic, you know, produce culture that we know today. And everyone is 
very much used to and familiar with now, but back then it was very, very new, the idea of, you know, organic farming and sustainable farming and the whole slow food movement hadn't really taken, taken form yet. And a lot of people in Northern California started these small farms. Uh, a couple of family friends started a small farm called Mariquita Farms. And actually, when I was in uh, high school, I worked at that farm. And they were one of the first organic lettuce producers, you know, you know, in the country. And actually very well known. And a lot of chefs in San Francisco and the Bay Area, Chez Panisse, you know, very famous restaurant, used to purchase their produce and still purchase their produce from this farm today. And I started working the farmer's markets with them. And that's really kind of when I started to get that vibe of, you know, this, this farming-to-table culture. Did you ever interact with any of the chefs and have sort of like, did you develop a one-on-one relationship to them? Did you ever drop off in their restaurants? Was there a moment when you stepped into Chez Panisse or something for the first time and you maybe came through the back door of a kitchen and, and saw it for the first time? I do remember that um, Alice Waters and her team used to, to buy... Uh, produce from us at the San Francisco market on the Embarcadero. And I remember when we did our first delivery, it was very unique to walk into that kitchen and see, you know, everything from the, the hanging copper pots to the very rustic wooden tables to, you know, everything about it. At the time, I didn't realize how much that memory would stick with me, but that's sort of my first impression of the chef world. So you walk into this kind of beautiful, rustic, but also refined restaurant, and you're selling them lettuce. Is it weird at a young age to kind of make the connection between what happens on the farm and then what ended up on the plate? Was your family the type of family that went out to a lot of dinners, and did you eat fine dining as a young kid or as a teenager or were those worlds separate for you at that time? Um, no, they were very much, um, intertwined. My family travels a lot. We're all huge foodies. Everyone in my family is a great home chef. My grandmother, my uncle, you know, good food. I didn't know how good I had it then. Um, you know, when I would, would hang out with my other friends, you know, this, this wasn't part of their lives. They didn't go out and eat the amount of times that we did per week. They didn't travel the world like we did. They didn't have that love and respect for the difference between a head of iceberg and a perfect organic head of baby Lola Rosa that you literally picked and cleaned and maybe delivered to someone and saw how they, you know, brought it to life onto a plate. Where uh, did you travel as a family, and uh, and why did why do you think that your parents sort of prioritized? food and travel there's tons of people that have never been outside of the united states it seems like you've been lucky enough to have to have visited a lot of places um what do you think it was about your family or your parents that led them to uh to take you on trips and also take you out and sort of explore cuisine and culture it definitely all started with my grandparents my grandmother was a devout traveler um huge foodie she was cooking things, you know, well before their time, uh, very experimental. She would study her way through cookbooks as she traveled the world and make things that people just really weren't even making yet. And she never became a professional chef, but she shaped the whole family when it comes to that, that love for food and travel. And I'm sure that, you know, it translated to my mother. My mother became a huge traveler, uh, you know, uh, actually, she met my my biological father in South America during her travels, and that sort of shaped my younger childhood. I spent a lot of time in South America. We actually lived in Colombia. And are there any specific dishes that you remember, either that, that grandma made or that mom made, maybe something from Colombia, maybe something more American, but what were some of the things that would hit the table in your house with all these great cooks and everyone thinking about food all the time. Uh, you obviously work at a Mexican restaurant now, but you've worked at the gamut of places. I'm curious about some of those dishes and if any of them have ever kind of percolated up again during your cooking career. 
I mean, I think one of the ones that would stand out would be a lot of the holiday dishes. You know, those always tend to resonate with you. My grandmother's chipino that she would make uh, at Christmas was out of this world, crab chipino. And what's that? That's a, a, a very Italian uh, crab dish with tomatoes and olives. I mean, her version was very, a little bit different, but, you know, lots of olives and, and brininess to the tomatoes and just, you know, that those flavors, when I think about it, it's like I can almost taste them in my mouth. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of Italian food, but a lot of baking as well. Uh, she was always, you know, very seasonal with her baking. Her pies were incredible. Um, casseroles. I mean, there's so many. My mom, she she has a bunch too. She wouldn't say or claim that she's a great cook. Uh, she doesn't give her, herself enough credit uh, that she she inherited that from her mother. But my mom's got some good dishes as well. Often the really great home cooks don't want to take any credit for what they do at home. And they just say, oh, you know, I dabble. I throw a couple things together. But some of the best cooks in the world, as we all know, are grandmas, our moms that have gotten, you know, uh, recipes passed down. It seems like all that influence led you to then go to culinary school. Uh, all these flavors and travels impacted you to make that decision. Was that a obvious choice for you or did you consider, or did you go to a traditional college and then go to culinary school? What was that path and decision-making process like? It was absolutely not an obvious thing for me. You know, I went to I went to regular school for a little while and, you know, as many young women do, got a little lost along the way and uh, found myself, I moved to uh, Southern California on a whim just for a change of scenery. I had been in Santa Cruz my whole life and... You know, I didn't plan on going to culinary school, but a friend of mine, she actually went to tour a school. She came home from the tour and kind of threw this pamphlet on the couch. And she was like, ugh, I'm not into this. I don't know why my mom made me go check this out. I don't know what I want to do. So I picked up this pamphlet, and that was, that was the moment right there, this pamphlet for the California School of Culinary Arts. And I read it from cover to cover. And I don't remember exactly how long it took, but I called my mom who was probably frustrated with me at the time because I didn't know what I was going to do. And I said, I want to do this. And I was like, how can I do this? Help me do this. And they helped me do it. We split it. They paid half. I got student loans for the other half, and I was enrolled within a couple of weeks. And that was it. I knew from there. So you graduate from culinary school. You have this foundation now of technical skills at... You don't probably know much about an actual real kitchen because a lot of people coming out of culinary school don't really know what it's like to be on the line. Where do you end up? Where's your first job? What are your first kind of roles within the restaurant industry looking like at that point in time? So this is where working on that farm, you know, comes circles back. Uh, the owners of that farm actually were very good friends with a lot of renowned chefs in the city. And there was one chef, uh, Joseph Manzar, that had a restaurant named Globe, and he was opening one in Southern California. And she got me in, and that was my first job. I did my internship there. I proved myself shucking a gazillion oysters every day, <laughs> prepping, prepping my butt off day after day after day. And then eventually they offered me a job as a garmage cook, and then I killed it on garmage, and then they offered me a job as a saute cook, and I killed it on saute, and slowly worked my way up. And in that first job, actually, when one of the sous chefs left, that was when I was offered my first sous chef position. So you're at Globe, this restaurant in Los Angeles, a very popular restaurant, very busy, a lot of famous clientele. It's your first kind of entry point into the real world, and you get promoted to sous chef quickly which is a pretty big deal. I mean, obviously, they, they thought that you were ready. Did you feel ready? Looking back on it, I, I probably wasn't ready. But, you know, it, it's an interesting thing when you do well like that in your first job because when you go to your next job, it's a bit of a, a shock for you when you've come off of this high of, well, I've got this. This is, you know, I'm good at this. And it's not that easy the rest of the way. But um, 
you know, I, I did pretty well. I think that I handled myself well for that particular type of restaurant. I'm curious about mentors and also leadership style, what you glean when you you know, become a sous chef and also when you moved on to your next restaurant because you have led many kitchens at, at a very high level and you've done it um, under a lot of corporate structures, which we'll, we'll get to in a little while. But in those early jobs um, at Globe and at other, at other spots when you were not the executive chef yet, any mentors that were really important to you and any huge takeaways for any young cooks that are listening to this, um, what are what are really important things that you wish that you had maybe known then or that you wish that you would have like paid more attention to about gaining a greater foothold from a leadership perspective? I would definitely say one of my first mentors was someone named Robert, Robert Roquin at Globe. Um, he always kind of taught me to not worry about what everyone else was doing or how well everyone else was doing or what's fair or not fair, that all I needed to worry about was what I was doing. And if I failed something, it was on me and only me. It had nothing to do with anyone else. And one of the things I would say to any young cook is there's a lot of people out there in the world today who are worried about how far everyone else is coming along next to them. Well, I've been here longer, or that guy hasn't been here as long as me. How come he got promoted? Or why did she get a raise? Or why did she get that shift I wanted or got to learn under the chef on saute? I think the most important thing for me and why I was successful is I never paid attention to what was going on with everyone else's path. I focused on my own path and had my own goals, short-term and long-term. And as long as I stuck to those, I always, always achieved them. And it's about focusing on your path, not everyone else's path. So... Tell me about those long-term and, sh- and short-term goals. You, you've worked at, um, at several places where you have come in and helped them launch concepts. Um, that's sort of a different culinary environment than what, what Acme was. So Acme is a standalone restaurant. It has uh, some Nordic influence, right? Yeah. And uh, very modern plating. Um, and then you've also been at uh, OTG, which uh, develops concepts for airports, correct? The complete opposite the, end of the spectrum. Right. And then and then I guess what you could say in, in the middle of that a little bit is STK, which is like fine dining, but they do kind of crank them out. So there's a, there's a system there, right? So it's sort of like a blending of fine dining and also uh, the, the practical uh, streamlined OTG type of style. So... All that, all that being said, um, I'm curious which one of those realms have you loved the most? Like, which one do you actually think is most suited to you personally? Like, I assume you enjoyed pieces from each one, but which one of those styles of cooking do you think really truly appeals to you personally as a chef? I think, you know, projects like the Acme Project, I left STK and the One Group to take that job because it was something I hadn't done. I mean, Globe and, and a lot of restaurants in LA were very, you know, farm to table, but the Acme project was an opportunity for me to really dive in to my culinary skills with a, a very famous chef and, you know, open an excellent restaurant, you know, and I, I did that as the chef de cuisine and it was so important. And, you know, I learned a lot about pushing my limits about what I could do creatively But after I left that job, I realized that although I am creative and I I believe my culinary skills are are very, you know, honed, I am not necessarily the super, super uh, eccentric, focused, creative chef that wants to kind of change that menu every day and really dive in there and be all about my craft. I, I did realize something about myself that I embraced the business side as well. So from my corporate, you know, experience, I realized I'm really good at opening restaurants. I'm really good at building models. I'm really good at fixing things and building structure. And so I am somewhere in between, not to answer your question about which one is my favorite. I am kind of a, a hybrid chef. But I, I embrace the business side, and I think I really do enjoy, um, you know, kind of 
building the foundations of businesses. It's cool that you've been able to see so many facets of what the business can offer. And then you've been able to make an intelligent choice based on having those experiences and the evidence at hand to be like, well, I tried that. It worked. And okay, now I kind of know which realm I really want to pursue. Uh, so you talked about you know systems and the business side otg for for those listening that that are not familiar with it they uh often do licensing deals or they will develop internal concepts right and then they'll put them in food courts and airports am i kind of explaining that properly they build their own concepts they're all unique to their company yeah and so they kind of they tackle every type of cuisine right and what they do is make it super streamlined and make it so that it can be fast and efficient. Um, what were your roles there? And also, can you just kind of pull back the curtain a little bit? I mean, I'm sure you did recipe development for them and also, uh, executing on site, but like, what does that really mean when you go to a company like that and you're not, there's no service, there's no 5 PM is your mise en place set. It's a totally different type of, of culinary position. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it, when I came on board, uh, I came on as the assistant director for the terminal, so there was someone above me. And, you know, it was a shock to to find out the, the method and the process of opening these restaurants in that environment. I mean, it's you're open from 5 in the morning till midnight, and when the... The gates open, it's 10,000 people in the building. There's no easing into it. And when it's opening day for any restaurant, your guests don't know it's opening day. You don't get a soft opening. You don't get a friends and family. It's we're open and now you've got 10,000 travelers and your seats are full within a matter of five minutes on opening day. So it, it was all about the preparation and the training for that. Um, you know, it definitely helped that my culinary background is strong because of the number of concepts we opened. I was paired with, um, various celebrity chefs to come up with concepts for each of the locations. And although their influence was very strong and their, their menus were there, it was up to me to do the recipe development to back those menus. So, I mean, we're talking about the whole spectrum of cuisines. I got to pull out, even though it doesn't sound like it working in an airport. I got to dive into things that I had never even dreamed of. And I worked with every type of cuisine you can imagine. And I honed all of those skills over three years. So when you were with OTG and you're developing these concepts, what is the process like? Do you, so you get paired with a chef and let's just pretend that it's an Italian concept. Do you just start conceptualizing dishes, testing them in the kitchen, and then do things hit the cutting room floor based on food costs, based on how difficult they are? Like, what does that filtering process look like when, how do things end up on the menu at an airport different from a restaurant that's just on the street in Santa Monica, or is it exactly the same? There are aspects that are the same. You have to, of course, consider food cost and, and, you know, all of the usual things, but unlike a standalone restaurant, you have to remember that you have people traveling from around the world and their perception of the first thing they want to eat when they step foot in New York. Um, you know, even though every concept was different, you know, we had to have a burger on every menu. We had to have, you know, some type of pizza or flatbread that catered to the concept because people were coming to America. This is their first stop in New York. So despite it being maybe um, an Asian-influenced restaurant, we'd had to have those elements that were American-style food. So, I mean, yeah, speed, efficiency are all taken into account. You're working in very tight, small kitchens that aren't very efficient, and you've got to bang out this food. Are you weighing in at all on the the logistics, uh, transportation or organization of the kitchen? Like, were you basically on the back end side in terms of, uh, culinary development or did you have a say in, um, how the kitchen was structured for efficiency purposes? (laughs) I, to a certain extent, yes. (laughs) I mean, we would, I would get to, when I got promoted to the actual terminal 
chef. And is this at LaGuardia, by the way? This or? was at United. At this United. was the United build-out. Okay. So this was like a $120 million build-out. We opened 36 concepts. I mean, uh, as I things progressed, they invited my opinion more and more, you know, when it was trial and error uh, in regards to kitchen design. But most of that was based on aesthetic for the airport. I, there wasn't a lot I could do to change it. And so you kind of butt up against this, like, efficiency versus what looks pleasing to the guest, which unfortunately might not be the best for cooking and for production. Was there, is there a big commissary kitchen that services all those concepts or are they, are they siloed individually or is there a huge kitchen that makes all the sauces and then they go upstairs to the various concepts? Uh, some, some airports do have commissaries. Ours was, were individual. So on a day to day, you're just overseeing multiple spinning balls at the exact same time. Uh, what would you say was the, uh, was the most fulfilling aspect of, of that job? And what was the most difficult, challenging aspect of that job? Uh, for me, it was, you know, being able to check these concepts off the list with the different cuisines and be able to say, you know, I did that. I, I wrote a ramen menu. I learned how to, you know, I worked with famous ramen chefs and learned how to make noodles and, you know, learned how to make ramen. And then I learned how to make dumplings and this and that. Those things were important to me to check off my list. Um, but at the end of the day, after three years and and 36 concepts, you know, when, when an opportunity comes along like Dos Caminos, uh, you know, where I have a chance to do something amazing with a brand that's been around for a long time and focus on one cuisine is, you know, it's like the light at the end of the tunnel. I've been spinning out for three years and finally it's like, okay, I'm going to do Mexican for the next however long and, and go with that. All right. So you distilled 36 ideas down into one. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to spend the rest of the time talking about Dos Caminos and your role with that group. Stick with us here on the line on Heritage Radio. what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound? What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. I'm Souther Teague of Amoria Margo and a co-host of The Speakeasy right here on Heritage Radio Network. You know, my favorite thing to do every week is to come here and be on the show. I have lots of jobs. I'm a very busy person. Um, and I do this because I love it. I get to sit down and talk to all my heroes for about an hour every week. It's incredible. And I hope that you enjoy it, making a great effort to share with you. And we'd like you to share back with us. It's our summer fundraiser, and we'd love for you to donate uh, at heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate. You can click on the beating heart, and you can even choose shows that you'd like to donate to specifically. And you can also choose a recurring monthly uh, gift. Uh, and for all that, we'd be greatly appreciative. Thank you so much. Welcome back to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. And today my guest is Chef Ariel Fox. She is the executive chef of Dos Caminos. They have five locations around New York. She's 
previously worked pretty much everywhere. She's worked in uh, Northern California. She's worked in Los Angeles and New York at Acme, SDK, and for the One Group Developing Concepts and at OTB Developing Concepts uh, for the United Terminal. So you've, you did a lot. You've opened many concepts with tons of different flavor profiles, big, small, fancy, less fancy. Now you're at Dos Caminos. Dos Caminos, for those that don't know, can you describe what Dos Caminos is, what the general vibe is, and what type of cuisine it is? So Dos Caminos is a a brand that's been around for a while in New York. Uh, It's basically regional Mexican cuisine, so not focused in in one particular state of Mexico. So it embraces um, all sorts of flavors from different areas in Mexico. And it's it's a up upscale casual, I would say, not fine fine dining, but it's upscale Mexican, um, and great great atmosphere for after work, great weekend crowd, um, just overall good vibe for good margaritas and good Mexican food. Who doesn't like margaritas and chips and guacamole? That tends to be like a pretty easy sell to to most people. And we'll dive into the to the actual menu and kind of you're working on some new concepting in a little bit. But first, uh, you actually just asked me during the break kind of like what I'm working on. And so my brother and I have a shawarma concept. They're very small. They're QSR. And then we have a burger concept, also uh, very small. And so I'm really interested in Dos Caminos and and the model of growth. And I would love for you to speak a little bit about just kind of the logistics and organization since as a small business owner and those others listening, uh, I would love to dive into kind of the nitty gritty of just what the actual structure is at Dos Caminos. So specifically, how do you achieve consistency across five locations? That's that's sort of my my first question about it. Um, Do you use... uh, centralized recipes like how do you manage the quality control at five locations so if you could speak a little bit of of that that would be great yeah absolutely actually you know when i came on board this was one of the the things that um they wanted me to tackle was trying to balance the consistency across the locations they knew my background was extensive when it comes to structure and foundations and opening so many restaurants that I was the right person for that job to come in. Um, you know, we have some excellent chefs, but but without that sort of organized structure, they were all, you know, putting their own kind of take on things. And, and the direction that we want to go with this brand is we do want to expand it. And we want it to be that you eat at one Dos Caminos, you know, in New York, it's going to be the same if you eat at one in, you know, Florida or wherever if we open more. So, you know, my first challenge was coming in and really kind of embracing all of their their flavors and recipes and then sort of diving into them and figuring out what the final recipe was going to be. Uh, there was a lot of lot of tastings, a lot of testings, a lot of yield testing, uh, and then uh, followed by workshops with all the chefs. I mean, it's about coming up with a solid uh, recipe and then making sure that all of the leadership is on board with that recipe. So instead of me coming in as a new chef and dictating to these people who've been around for, you know, eight, 10 years, well, we're going to do my version of this. Instead, I looked at what they had been doing. Why don't you guys come to a tasting? What I did was I took 25 major sauces or bases that we use and said, you guys are going to do a tasting for me. All five of you, executive chefs, are going to make whatever version you've been doing of these 25 things, and you're going to bring it to this tasting. And then we are all going to taste them as a group, and we are going to decide the best one. And then we're going to break it down from there, and we are going to commit to making that be the one. And then I would veto things if I didn't think any of the five were good enough. Then I would, of course, you know, tweak it, but... It was important to get everyone involved so that the buy-in was there. Totally. It sounds like a very democratic process. And also you decided to utilize the talent that you had at hand to then drill down and find what could be the best version for for the restaurant. So you actually had a lot of skilled, talented people that you could then uh, mold into what you needed the menu to be. Uh, another kind of fascinating thing about when brands grow is that you know you hear that their sort of quantity control and their sourcing is always a little bit scattered. Okay, so one restaurant uses X for their 
avocados. Another restaurant gets their lettuce from another purveyor. Did you come in and find a fairly streamlined ordering, scheduling process? Or did you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to strap in and I've got to really, I mean, did you, were you doing Excel documents for all these things (laughs) or was, you know, it was, was a, it, it was a strap-in situation <laughs> for sure. Okay, so so tell tell us a little bit about what that's like to come into a successful restaurant group that's I would assume doing well financially. The customer is there, the brand loyalty is there, but behind the scenes, what type of work did you have to put in besides just flavor tweaking? You know, all the chefs were making, you know, good decisions for themselves and and buying from, you know, purveyors have a way of influencing people. They come in and they visit, you know, the chef, as you know, um, and convince you about their tomatoes or, you know, their jalapeno peppers. And and what happens is, is the chefs make great decisions, but they're different decisions. And so I did have to come in and streamline the purchasing. But again, I kept it very democratic. If a chef really stood by something and felt, you know, this was this was the item, it was it was all about doing cuttings and tastings for months. It was side by side comparisons, uh, putting it into a sauce. You know, you can't just taste the pepper on its own. You have to make your salsa verde with the two different peppers and see how the nuances come through. So, I mean, it was there were a lot of spreadsheets, a lot of tests. But we eventually got a purchasing book together and we review it quarterly. It sounds like an amazing process, although daunting, to be in an existing restaurant while simultaneously almost rebuilding and recrafting the restaurant, almost kind of from the ground up. You're, you're, you have an a exterior shell, but then the interior, you're rebuilding it. Um, do you think that that's where your greatest strength lies in sort of the uh, organizational uh, rebuilding and rebranding of the concept? Is that is that sort of what, you're, what you love to do the most? Uh, at, there was a time when I would tell you, I don't want to open another restaurant. I don't want to do this anymore. But as the, the, they stack up 10, 20, 30, 40 restaurants, you have to accept who you are and what you do well and realize that, you know what, I think I actually enjoy doing this, and I, I do enjoy building that structure and, and kind of redeveloping things. What does a normal day look like for you? Do you have a, a test kitchen? Is there a restaurant that's more of your home base? In a, in a normal week, do you visit all five of the locations? Talk a little bit about what your personal Schedule and what's a weekly goals look like for you? I do office uh, out of Park Avenue, one of our locations, because I, I do have a uh, large prep kitchen in there. So it's kind of, I have a corner that's my test kitchen. But uh, in, in any given week, I definitely see all the locations at least once. Some weeks when I'm not having to do development and other projects, I'm definitely touring the stores more, doing quality control, doing food and beverage audits, um, spending time with with sous chefs. I, I don't just spend time with executive chefs. I spend a lot of time with our GMs, our floor managers, our sous chefs. It's important to me um, to use coachable moments anytime I'm in a store. You know, I don't just go into a store with tunnel vision and go straight to the kitchen. It's important that there are no wasted trips for me, that every time I go that we're doing something to make things better. Dos Caminos is part of Be Our Guest, which is quite a massive hospitality company. Uh, I would assume that at this point it has maybe even a 1,000 employees based on how many locations it has. Uh, Does Dos Caminos feel like its own kind of section, smaller entity family of that company, or does it really feel like you're part of this massive... um, massive corporate structure. And I don't mean that in the negative sense. I just mean like, do you feel like um, you're part of a, a Dos Caminos or do you feel like you're part of Be Our Guest or are those the same thing? Well, actually, so Landry's is the the parent company that mm-hmm. bought Be Our Guest. Okay. And it's actually over, you know, there's like 600 restaurants all over the country. So it's even bigger than I thought. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but Be Our Guest is, is uh, 
the New York-based restaurants that they had bought when they took over. Uh, you know, we definitely have our own identity, but we've been spending the last couple years, you know, getting on board with the Landry's culture and systems, and it's really benefited us, you know, for the positive. It's it's all about embracing the parts of the, the corporate culture that we needed to be able to to build Dos Caminos into a model that we can expand, whereas I, I don't think it could have done that before. It was a great, great model, but without that consistency across the board and that base structure, you can't uh, you can't duplicate it somewhere else. So we feel we feel the corporate structure in a in a positive way, but we still have our identity. What are those barriers to entry for expansion? I I mean, you live in New York City. I assume that. As someone who's opened many concepts, you probably go somewhere and say, this is good. And I bet if they did this, this, and this, they could open two or three more, but they're doing things wrong, or maybe they're just not streamlining properly. Uh, You're in a position where there's five. I imagine there's plans to do many, many more. Where is Dos Caminos at right now, and what are the steps that you need to take in order to get it from small-ish New York-based chain to me flying into Philadelphia, Austin, Texas, and Los Angeles and seeing Dos Caminos in all of those cities? What what does it take to get to that level? I mean, like any, any other business model, it's about, you know, having a 110% guest-first attitude, uh, making sure that all of your leadership and everyone on your team is bought in to that. Um, that they believe in the product that we're get, we're putting out. That they believe in the food and the beverage program. Um, you know, obviously the basics, the consistencies, and the recipes are important. But it's it's about the culture being the same in each location. Uh, we're we're so close. We're there. We're in a very good place. Uh, you know, I really feel like we have a great team. Uh, we have some new people on board as well that I'll be working with, and I'm excited for the future of this brand. If you can give a couple specifics, since you, you've been with the company for a, for a while now, and I wanted to know if you can isolate a couple of what you think, maybe just two or three, what your top priorities or goals would be for uh, the last two quarters of 2018 and 2019. Like, What are you really focused on for Dos Caminos as, as a brand um, that is almost about to expand dramatically, it sounds like? Well, I mean, one of my focuses that I'm kind of in the middle of right now is is putting a little bit of my own identity onto the menu. Uh, that was something I didn't dive into when I first got there because I think it was important to, you know, like I said, get through the, the purchasing and the, the consistency and all of the, the nuances of the existing menu. And now I'm in a place where I'm getting to work on some new flavor profiles and some new kind of bringing a new light to Dos Caminos. So we're actually in the middle of my first real menu change right now, which is very exciting. So I would say one of the things for quarter three would be to just really tighten that up and make sure that everyone is on board with those changes and embraces it, see how the public takes it, what is the feedback from people. Because, I mean, the menu has been the same for so long. It's important to me that I understand the customer feedback when it comes to these changes I'm making. So that's kind of my focus for Q3. So without giving away, you know, the secrets of what's in development, is there something that you're working on right now that is like a large deviation from the core Dos Caminos menu? I mean, are you putting on a large format roasted something for eight people? Are you doing something like Elote, which hasn't been on the menu, or maybe, you know, just what are some of these things that you're working through right now that someone who goes to Dos Caminos every Friday for happy hour is going to notice that it's a new thing on the menu? Well, for me, summer in the city, you know, has a lot of influences. And I think that just because we're a Mexican restaurant doesn't mean that we can't also embrace some of those summertime comfort foods. So there are a couple random things that people might first look at and be like, what the heck is that doing on a Mexican menu? But I do have a version of some wings, chicken wings. I have a version of um, some ribs, barbecued ribs. 
Um, these are takes on, you know, good old American summer food, but I'm using um, Mexican techniques and Mexican flavors and ingredients. So, you know, it could go either way. I'm hoping people are receptive to it, but I'm trying to expand our horizons and open open the doors to some other things. I'm bringing in some flavors from the Yucatan. You know, it's not necessarily considered Mexican regional cuisine, but I think there are a lot of flavors in the Yucatan that are amazing, and I think that they belong on our menu, and I want to bring them on board. In terms of staffing, which is an issue for basically everyone in every major city, uh, with five locations uh, and growing, you have some things working for you, which is with a big parent company, you have some... Uh, probably flexibility to to offer things that maybe smaller restaurant entities can't. Um, what what are your concerns about the labor market if it does affect you, and how do you uh, cultivate and and obtain and retain uh, quality talent at a restaurant that is a, it is a true restaurant, but might have the perception of being like a more of a fast food restaurant, like more of a QSR from a cook perspective. It's more of like a fast casual restaurant. Um, how do you achieve uh, obtaining great chefs to work at Dos Caminos? You know, it's as you know, it's very challenging in New York to find talent. Um, you know, I would say equally finding management as it is to find good line staff. Um, a lot of people flock to, you know, in New York, you have a new restaurant popping up every five minutes uh, with some new up and coming chef and and the true, you know, young culinary crowd is kind of drawn to jump around to those jobs um, rather than finding a home uh, with some stability and, and the ability to grow and develop. Um, one of the things we focus on or I focus on is that with this large parent company, the opportunity for growth for an entry-level line cook is, you know, huge. And they can work with me and learn things. We're a scratch kitchen. And it might be perceived that we, you know, we might be fast, casual Mexican, but we we make every single thing from scratch. And some of these recipes are extremely complicated and the technique is very involved. And for a young culinary person coming in, if I can get them to at least come in the door and spend a day in the life with us for a trail, I usually can show them, you know, what we have going on and what they have to learn. With, uh, with the future of, of Dos Caminos looking pretty bright and, and I would assume you getting a little bit busier, what does work-life uh, balance look like to you uh if you do achieve it how do you and if you're not quite there yet what are you hoping that that will look like <laughs> well i am uh i am pregnant at the moment congratulations so. <laughs> thank you uh so i am kind of in this weird unknown territory i'm not quite sure how it's going to unfold but you know my mom was a career driven uh single mom for a while till she met my my dad my stepdad and, you know, it's never a good time. So the way I see it is, it, you know, I'm very fortunate. I am successful. Uh, I am in a position with a good company that is family oriented. So I feel like I'll be able to find that balance. But right now it, it does feel like, you know, I, I don't know where it's going. But uh, the little ones do in October. So right before Q4, busiest <laughs> quarter of yeah. the year. Uh, and I'm going to have to go on leave, so we're not sure how that's going to work out, but I have a good team, and we're setting them up for success, and we'll figure it out. So cool. You'll take a little bit of time for I'll yourself. I'll take a little bit of time. Whatever that might look like, we might see you back running around right afterwards. Uh, on, on, a, on a personal level, we'll close with, with this question, which is you've led so many kitchens, and often you've been developing other people's food and their concepts for them. And you've been able to input a lot creatively, but I'm curious, do you have a dream down the line of your own individual standalone restaurant that will be 100% from start to finish your own concept? And if you do, if that's 10, 20, 
30 years from now, what might it look like and where would it be if that's something that is of interest to you? It's definitely of interest to me. Uh, you know, what that restaurant is has changed over the years, of course. But um, I kind of wanted that to be what I end up doing. Some chefs want to start with that. I want that to be the last thing I do. And I might not make the most money when I do it. And I might be going from a much higher level than I am now to, to owning and operating a small restaurant. But to me, if that can be my end all point where I end up and I get to just do my own thing for the rest of my life, that would be I would be happy with that. But it's it's a long way off. I feel like I still have a lot to give. Um, you know, in this position and in the business. And I want to learn everything I can before I dive into that. As you know, opening restaurants, you open restaurants with your brother. It's a scary thing. And, you know, I want to just make sure that I'm ready. And, and I don't know what it'll be yet. I've always wanted to do a breakfast spot, but I, I feel like maybe that ship has sailed. There's so many now. Um, I don't know. We'll see. Chef, thanks so much for being here and sharing your story and telling us about everywhere you've worked and also uh, the development and the future of uh, Dos Caminos, the, the current uh, expanding company that you're working with. There's a lot of locations, so the best way to find out about Dos Caminos is probably to find it, find them online. So how can we find you online? You can just go on Dos Caminos. That's our website. Uh, you can find Soho, Meatpacking, uh, Park Avenue, Times Square, and on the uh, 3rd Avenue. And are there any new locations that you can announce that are happening soon? I cannot, okay. but uh, I do feel confident that we, we, will, we will have that in the near future. Great. Thanks so much for being here. Congratulations again. Thank you so on, much. Uh, on your career and also on your uh, upcoming uh, new child that's arriving. Thank you. Thank you for having in me. In October. Uh, everyone, thanks for joining us for this episode of The Line. We'll be back pretty soon uh, for more episodes coming at you Tuesdays at 11 a.m. here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.